and that was the beginning of like let's relook at a lot of this why are we doing it this way and really really good stuff of evolution of making the route safer you know what is the wind doing that was the beginning of a four-year study of mapping the patterns of winds at Stevens. Hello, this is Patty Morrison, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by Ten Barrel Brewing. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 29th, as I record this intro, and a series of active weather patterns is impacting the western United States and Canada. Um, Much of this snow is going to be falling on a pretty weak surface, I would imagine, in many locations. So it could start to get spicy out there. Make sure to dot your I's and cross your T's as you head out for your early season ski tours these days, or maybe you're at the ski hill opening up some new terrain. Watch yourselves, watch your buddies. Stay safe out there. We've got a great episode for you teed up with Patty Morrison. Patty was a longtime ski patroller, now retired um, from most of the duties, but she was a longtime ski patroller up at Stevens Pass in Washington. What a cool place up there. Um, and Patty still stays pretty involved with some avalanche education that, that happens at the mountain uh, through a program that she helped to develop. Um, So we're excited to share this episode with you, but first we want to make sure that you know about the fundraising efforts of the American Avalanche Association. You might have heard Janie Nolan, the executive director of the A3, on a podcast episode a few episodes back talking about a matching grant that's going on right now through the end of the year. And so a generous anonymous donor is matching up to $10,000 of a fundraising effort with the A3. Um, so every dollar that you donate can double your impact by donating that money now through the end of the year. And currently, the A3 is at about 60% of their fundraising goal of $10,000. So let's help them out. I know my A3 membership is up for renewal, and I'll be tacking on some extra bucks to kick their way because it is a super essential uh, organization that provides so much support to our community. So join me in helping to meet that fundraising goal by the end of the year. Thanks for your help. Additional support for this episode is provided by Cal Topo. Planning your day in the backcountry is a crucial part of managing your risk. Tour planning is made simple through CalTopo's host of features within their desktop and mobile application. Set yourself up for a smooth day by previewing terrain with CalTopo's vast selection of mapping layers, including topo maps, aerial imagery, 
and slope angle shading to name a few there are many more anticipate and manage your time with simple travel time and elevation profile tools create maps and then collaborate and share them with your touring partners so that everyone is on the same page about your plan once your map is created on your computer through your account it'll also show up on your mobile device app to be downloaded for offline use without cellular data Follow CalTopo on Instagram to see more features and tutorials of my favorite mapping software. They can be found at CalTopo. CalTopo is offering the Avalanche Hour podcast listeners 10% off any individual CalTopo subscription. Go to caltopo.com slash subscription and use coupon code AvalancheHour to get 10% off. This discount can be applied to a new or existing CalTopo subscription at time of renewal. Subscribe today and set yourself up for a great day out there. This episode is also made possible with the support of Athletic Greens. I've been drinking AG1 by Athletic Greens every morning since May, and I've been benefiting from the nutritional insurance that it provides me. I'm not a huge fan of taking pills and vitamins, and AG1 is super easy to just mix in 12 ounces of water in the morning, shake it up, and drink it down. It's how I start each morning, and it's a super simple routine that's very sustainable. I've been benefiting from better gut health, more energy, increased focus, and an optimized immune system. You're going to find 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, to help you make sure that you have the nutritional insurance that you need. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash avalanche hour to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, without further ado, let's jump in with Patty Morrison. Welcome to the show, Patty. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm fine. Enjoying this nice fall weather in Southern Oregon right now. It's October 30th as we record this. And where are you calling in from? Um, I'm calling from Leavenworth, Washington. Oh, excellent. Well, Patty, I'm super excited to get you on the program here. I was hoping you could introduce yourself a little bit, talk about some early memories, how you got into uh, skiing and ski patrolling and avalanche forecasting. Well, um, I consider myself a late bloomer to the whole thing. You know, I grew up in suburbia America, and uh, it wasn't until I got into college in Southern Oregon State that um, I started truly experiencing the outdoors on a level that I love and found my passion. Um, I got a job at the Southern Oregon State Outdoor Center, just a work-study job, and it it changed my life. Uh, In essence, we were a bunch of college students that had the keys to the toy box. We had 13 rafts, lots of climbing gear, lots of skis, and um, just uh, a lot of enthusiasm. I found my tribe there. And I'm learning to raft, I'm learning to climb. And then it was October, and my coworkers were oogling over a powder magazine and talking about new skis and all this. And then one looked up and asked me, 
what do you ski on? And I said, uh, I don't ski. And the whole room went silent. And then, uh, gosh, uh, we the outdoor program puts on this um, regional ski swap, and we do it. And so uh, next thing I know, I was buying skis, boots, poles, everything, could barely carry them down the aisle. I had skis, boots, poles, everything in a ski pass before I had ever skied. And um, my friends just took me under their wing and I learned to ski and ran with it. And it was amazing. And then after that, I did decide to travel across the U.S. and found that Jackson Hole was an amazing place. So I lived there for a few years and really followed my passion of skiing. And then uh, made it to Bend, Oregon, back to Oregon, and uh, got on ski patrol there. And so while you were in Jackson, that's where you really kind of grew your wings in, in terms of backcountry skiing. Is that right? Oh, yeah. There was a, an amazing woman that we became good friends, Lori Davis. And uh, we toured all over the place. And that's, ex- that's when I experienced being in my first avalanches. It was a, a classic naivety. I actually had a shovel, a wooden heaven shovel, but no transceivers, nothing. And uh, luckily, we were able to hang on to trees as these big blocks of snow went around us. And, um, that was my introduction. All right. Tell us a little bit more about that that first avalanche you were in. What was the setup there? Um, most of us played on Teton Pass, really easy. You know, we we you know drive up, you ski down, and then run your shuttle. Um, but this, for some reason we decided we were going to ride up Snow King, a ski area in, in Jackson, in the town and, uh, ski out a ridge and then come down into town. And it was just the two of us usually we're with the bigger group and, um, just the two of us and beautiful day, but we had absolutely no clue of what the avalanche hazard was or anything. It was just true 23 year olds going out there with, with no, no experience. I mean, no avalanche experience. And, um, we started heading down a ridge and, um, you know, kind of a little bit of complex terrain in the sense it was steep then mellow than steep. And, um, we hit a pocket and, um, the whole thing ripped. I'd say it was about a foot and a half to crown. And luckily we were right by some trees and each of us grabbed a tree and it ripped around us and we were big eyes. And, and I think that was the beginning of where'd that come from? What, what, what happened? You know, just really a, an eye opener of, of what I was doing without a lot of, uh, concern you know just go out skiing that's all you did you know and and quite a bit of intrigue it sounds like as well oh absolutely i mean absolutely i think that you know skiing was becoming my passion and then then i was really introduced to backcountry skiing in jackson and that's when um i think the world of avalanches really started waking up to me and then you know um when i made it back to oregon you know i had a a summer job but not a winter job and that's how I just decided I want to try ski patrolling because I knew the patrollers in Mount Ashland and I thought they were so cool so I wanted to be cool I guess. (laughs) 
And so you headed to Bend and, and started ski patrolling at Mount Bachelor. What yep. was the what was the culture like? And were you able to get some experience doing some avalanche control work there? Well, back in the day, that again, that was the early nineties, um, late eighties. Um, it was still a little bit of good old boy, you know. And um, Bachelor is a relatively mellow mellow mountain, and is a bit as far as avalanche terrain goes. Not to say it doesn't have it; it does. But so there was just very few. When there was avalanche control, it was a very elite uh, team that got to go, and I would always bug the avalanche forecaster. When do I get to go? I want to go. And I got to go out a couple times and, and, you know, kind of, I mean, great. I I gained a lot of experience there, but um, one of my coworkers had moved up to Stevens pass and um, he, I had never even heard of Stevens pass. You know, I heard of crystal and whistler and stuff like that, but he's the one that, just said, called me up and said, get up here. You would love it. Even deli boys do control up here. Everybody does control. And um, because one of my complaints to him was, well, I don't, I can't, I never even get to go out. I want to go out with them really bad. <laughs> and so I went up to check out Stevens in the spring just to ski with my friend and have a little ski break up there. And was blown away and fell in love with the terrain and the mountains and the North Cascades. And it, it was the closest thing to Jackson since I'd left. And I loved it. And so I applied. And the next year I was on patrol at Stevens Pass, 1994. Talk a little bit about the characteristics of Stevens Pass in, in terms of the terrain and its uh, how it's situated within the range. What I've really discovered about the North Cascades or the Cascades and you know up here, it's really a sea of ridges. They're not really that tall, but there is just a sea of rugged, rugged, rugged ridges, and um, a lot. You know, they're young mountains, so they're super steep. And Stevens Pass is um, uh, a steep ski area with not a lot of intermediate beginner terrain. There's a a lot of uh, steep terrain that feeds into it. So there's over 200 um, avalanche paths in the ski area. So Stevens Pass has a huge avalanche program. And um, again, back in the day, they used to classify these resorts like Class A, Class B. I don't think it's in happens anymore, but we were considered a Class A avalanche resort in the sense of the amount of explosives we use and the amount of um, avalanche control that was needed to open the mountain for actually how small it is. These ridges, you know, they don't just run north-south. They're just a convoluted complex, uh, you know, like um, Stevens has one of the major ridges. It's called the Cowboy Ridge. But it just turns into, like, if you will, a corner that becomes chief mountain. So you have this big L-shaped ridge and then you have the backside of Chief Mountain, which is a whole nother, uh, almost like microclimb back there with a more easterly influence. The east side of the um, uh, the, the the pass a little bit more. But um, with this, I've discovered you know just different wind patterns and stuff. I think one of the more unique things with my years there is that I discovered. Well, I didn't really discover it. It's been mentioned by, you know, meteorologists and stuff like that. But 
when um, the Cascades is a real um, division in climate as far as the west side's wet and more maritime and the east side's dry, colder, more can be, you know, rain shadow. And um, the east side out in farther east in Washington and Oregon, you know, we have this high desert plateau and, you know, high. And so it's got a, the winter weather patterns aren't there, like high, uh, a high that sets over there and it's cold. And um, then when these warm westerly storms come, so you have this high and low and they, they will try to balance out in the Cascades. So that's where you get all these storms in the Cascades. And so when this low pressure that has potential rain westerly comes in, it'll, this high pressure will start sucking towards, towards the, the passes to, you know, mix and try to balance out. The cool thing about Stevens is we have a very tight orographic geologic canyon that comes up from the the east and uh sucks in this cold air perfectly and this cold air will mix with this warm air and many times save us from rain when say bachelor i mean uh, um baker and crystal and them are getting rain we were saved by what we call the easterly this cold air that rushed up to try to balance you know the pressure differences does that make sense i hope it does yeah, for sure. It's always nice to get saved from the rain. Yeah, we we used to say pray for the easterly, and this this is is uh, as the lo- westerly low is moving more towards Stevens, it will eventually knock out the easterly influence. But what I discovered over the years was that uh, excluding rain events, the average uh, density um, of the snow is seven percent. You know, water content. At Stevens, when most of the Cascades average is ten percent, so we have a little cool, colder snow than most people believe. Even in the Cascades event, you know, we we have lucked out because of that easterly flow a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so, how many routes would be run on a on a big storm day, and what sorts of avalanche mitigation techniques were utilized? So we had twelve routes, and. Um, Two avalanches, so they, they would, you know, they're just a, like a a, a gas powered. <laughs> I, I want to call it a potato gun, but not really. It's just, you know, it's a gas powered gun that lobs a little uh, um, cast penalite. It almost looks like a mini rocket. It's got fins and everything on it at the mountain. So we had two of those rolling, and then we had this twelve of the other routes where. It's two pound hand charges and, you know, um, uh, you know, just work the ridges and work the, the smaller slopes, but it's, it's super pockety complex terrain, but just, uh, pretty amazing to hear it when it's going off at the same time, you know, almost like a little mini war zone, just bombs going from different regions. Oh man, there's nothing better than that sound early morning on a on a control morning i have some fond memories of, of that talk a little bit about how the avalanche mitigation program evolved during your time at at stevens pass did you did did things change did routes change did you um were there implementation of any rack systems as time went on 
Oh, yeah. I would say that, you know, one thing when I first got there, I was highly impressed with the program as it was. But uh, a man, uh, John Andrews was the forecaster at the time. But there was a man that came and became patrol director a couple of years after I started. His name was uh, uh, Bill Williams, and he was from Alpine Meadows. And he brought a lot of good stuff to Stevens. It's like bringing us up into the 90s and, you know, really altered the program enough where I, it made it even more efficient. I think the thing when I first started, it was still, you know, uh, dominantly male. And, and, and uh, I mean, there's still a good handful of women on patrol. But the evolution I've seen is, you know, just, gosh, I, you know, just many more women on patrol, which is wonderful. I, I can see that in the industry as a whole. Back in the day when I was starting in the avalanche world, it was still, I, I'm going to venture to say 10% of the avalanche community was female. And now I could say that's 20, if not higher, you know, 20, you know, what would your guess be with that? Yeah, I mean, I I would say probably thirty percent now. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty anecdotal though. Yeah, that's a really big change there. And as far as um, uh, some of the mit- mitigation strategies, you know, some of the exp- uh, uh, like the avalanches were getting expensive, so we we the routes changed with that. But also, we have a pretty good tram system, where you know, on some of the steeper places and more really evaluating the route and seeing the potentials of how we used to be a little more old school cowboy going, this is the way we've always done it. And so that's how we do it. And then really seeing there were spots that were not safe. Like even one, it's called Polaris, uh, again, safe in the trees, but the whole, whole, whole slope ripped around us and we were mid slope. And that was a normal practice then of how to do that road route you'd you'd control everything above you and if it didn't go you'd move on lower in the mountain and you know and uh yeah we apparently released large large class three and again just in the trees safe with a whole avalanche ripping around you and that was the beginning of like let's we look at a lot of this why are we doing it this way and Really, really good stuff of, of evolution of making the route safer, you know, you know, um, yeah, putting in more trams, um, you know, dividing routes, like, you know, instead of, let's make this two routes instead of one, you know, stuff like that. So I think there, I think that's one of the things I'm impressed with Stephen's culture, the safety culture, but also the willing to still stay dynamic. You know, it seems like some programs get set and this is how we do it. And this is how we're going to do it. You know, it, it was the willingness of John Andrews, who was a great mentor of mine and other people to say, let's revisit the whole thing, you know, and it was good. It's, it's, it is a good program. It's a great program. Patty, you've done a bit of work in, in research and put out a paper in 2004 uh, concerning some wind patterns at Stevens Pass. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your work with that and what you found out. Well, thank you. Um, it, uh, I feel like that was my 15 minutes of fame. It's I presented it at ISSW and it's unnerving to talk in front of 700 people, your peers and know that they'll critique your, your, your research and, 
it went well. It, it got published in France and some other things. So, um, but what I discovered was, you know, one, the first intrigue was just this easterly effect was just understanding wind. But, um, one day we had a pretty significant wind event and chairs were starting to go on hold. And, uh, uh, the, somebody put it out on the, and I think it was the director just said, we need somebody to have head over to tie mill chair, uh, and to monitor the winds. Is anybody available? And that's when I said, of course I am. But I was on the other side of the mountain. So I'm starting to ski over that way. And I was getting hit from the wind from the West. And then I hit, as I ride up the chair, I realized I was feeling wind from the East. And then I started going, what is the wind doing? And, that was the beginning of a four-year study of mapping the patterns of winds at Stevens. And how I did this was um, I would um, I, I bought these inexpensive compasses and I gave them to all the patrollers. And then on wind event days, I I call out on the radio to have them just take a directional read, reading from wherever they were. And then at the end of the day, I gather collect this data from them, you know, little scribbled notes on pieces of paper. And then I started compiling, you know, data from the Northwest Avalanche Center, you know, and just because I'd have to throw out some of it just because the winds had shifted. So I needed consistent winds. And, um, but over the, over the time I was able to map predominant wind patterns and what blew my mind was in the corners of these uh, ridges, if you will, there's a couple of them. One's called tie stick, one's called pro shoot. Um, I discovered that an east wind was loading it exactly like a west wind. I, mean, I wouldn't say exactly, but east wind and west wind were loading it very similarly. And uh, it kind of threw out that old um, idea that east wind loads west slope i mean we use that for simplicity but it's way more com complex than that especially when you have complex terrain if you will wind follows it flows like water you know like as a river is going down it goes around a rock and creates an eddy behind that rock so you, the river is flowing in a different direction than the main i mean the water right there is flowing in a different direction it's exactly what wind is doing it's eddying out in places and so it'll hit something and turn right you know and so yeah i mean you, you can experience it just stepping behind a building if you will you know a, a wind shift you know right yeah certainly quite a few nuances in in little microclimates and and also wind loading patterns it's tough to not take a broad stroke of the brush when we're talking about wind loading sometimes what is your take home from some of this work or you know what's a salient point for for the rest of us out here not at Stevens Pass but um, you know in terms of wind loading patterns I'd say if I could do some catch-alls as just you know in passes and, and like we have this this space on the backside is called Gemini Pass and it gets insane winds in this pass what I discovered is of course the wind is constricting to go through the pass so it's higher in the pass than anywhere else and then as it comes through, it spreads out just like what water would do. So the east side of this pass 
or I guess I'd say more south, southeast um, side of the pass loads differently than the northeast than it does in the middle. So there's like subtle different loading in the whole uh, pass, you know, the sides of it and the middle. So that was an interesting takeaway. But another takeaway that I really was intrigued with was, okay, you're on the ridge tops, you have high winds. And, and so of course, you're going to get that loading below you. But then by the time it's mid mountain, a lot of times the wind was going cross slope, not down slope. And I found it time and time again, that just because of the, you know, the variation of the terrain that we would have mid slope cross loading and you know, when at top, you were having it straight across over the ridge. So that was super fascinating to see that. And then of course, uh, sporadic winds you're probably you know it's a big wind of it but it's gusty a lot of times we wouldn't have avalanche problems because it's just throwing the snow all the all over so there's not consistent loading um another um piece i guess those were my big takeaways it's just it's it's overly simplistic but i also understand how to how we have to keep that simple way to think about wind i do get it but at the same time making sure people are aware that um it's it's there's a lot of caveats and nuances to it yeah absolutely and and it seems like for backcountry recreationists you know like just learning learning the zones that you frequent so often is so important and getting out there in in storms perhaps when the wind is blowing of course making sure you're in safe terrain if there is avalanche hazard, but really taking the time to find the nuances of the places you, that you travel so much, right? Yeah, I think the biggest mind-blowing part for me was to discover that some major slopes loaded the same with a west wind or an east wind. That was the biggest one. Like, wow, wow, you know? Mm-hmm. So we generally talk about snow climates as continental, intermountain, and maritime. And Stevens Pass would probably fall into the maritime snow climate. Although, like you've described, uh, there are often microclimates within these ranges. And so this is a bit of a broad stroke. What are some disservices that we're doing by using those broad strokes um, and sort of some maybe conceptions and misconceptions of a maritime snow climate that you've noticed throughout your career? Well, I'd say that for the most part, you know, Stevens is definitely a maritime place. So, you know, the, the, one of the characteristics is uh, avalanche, you know, after a storm, avalanches are quick to rise, quick to fall, if you will. So really all you have to do is wait a couple days and then the avalanche dan- danger has usually happened, uh, is, I mean, it's gone. And so really, we don't maintain those deep layer instabilities, let's say, like, you know, the, the continental or even the intermountain does, you know, they heal themselves just because of this warmer regime, you know, I've followed surface core layers and just watch them just heal themselves, you know, before they reacted to avalanches or something like that. But where I, I feel like the, that, Simplicity again is back to almost like wind. Um, it is challenging is that the maritime snowpack, the snow, the, it, so we're dealing more with the surface snow, not less necessarily deep layers, but it can change rapidly in one day. 
because of this warmer regime, where say um, again continental, you're not. It's other than you know wind and stuff. You can have this consistent you know day in day out surfaces isn't changing a lot so you get a lot of changes in some of the avalanche accidents i've dealt with where people going out in the morning and then they go do a similar run and and you know the rapid warm-up of the day caused you know what loose on top so it's 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 almost like one of the things that i think you got to keep in mind is that that surface changes faster in a maritime climate you know the surface snow meaning the top foot of snow or something like that right changes way like radically Mm -hmm. and uh, you know um, so we get a lot of variation it's not just the same thing day in day out so it's saying i mean um, that's sweeping generalization of the continental as well but but the other thing that i think people forget is it's not necessarily surface horror that's our problem. It's what, what I call near surface faceting. It's this micro faceting that can happen on the surface and um, it can catch people off guard. And, you know, so we've had, say, a clear cold spell where it's not really apparent um, with big surface horror, but we have this little micro faceting on top. I'd say top couple, you know, like quarter inch or just a couple millimeters of, of this facet and then no snow for a while and then you know a little trickle in it's when we get what i call trickle ins meaning an inch or two landed on it then another inch or two you know over time you know you get this build up and nobody saw it coming all of a sudden we're having an avalanche cycle and um so it's the kind of so we get these these times where we have that experience, and that's exactly what happened with the Tunnel Creek accident. Was we had fog and just a dry spell, if you will, other than this just little trickle in, and you know we had these facets, and an inch came, and then a couple inches came, and then, so it just preserved the facets nicely. I'd say it was only. A, few centimeters down and then we got our our finally got some new snow some great powder and that's caught everybody by surprise yeah so um i'm glad you mentioned that so the the tunnel creek avalanche was on february 19th in 2012 and it was definitely a tragic high profile event in the adjacent backcountry to stevens pass um it's it's used in a lot of avalanche courses as a, a a really thoughtful case study. Um, and of course the New York times did the, the big multimedia project called snowfall about that. If, if listeners haven't, um, read and watched that, then I highly recommend it. But I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that accident and, and your involvement with the aftermath and, and yeah, just get into it a little bit more with the, the, you've already given us the setup for, you know, generally the the snowpack uh, conditions during that time, but what what happened there? Well, first of all, I need to say I was actually on a day off in the Met house skiing with some friends with the, on the day that it happened, so I was not there. But um, we were way back um, in Mazama where we had no cell service, and we were all going to go touring up you know, in the North Cascades and a friend from uh, uh, Winthrop 
was joining us and she came just going, oh my God, I just heard about an avalanche accident at Stevens. So I was able to go drive to cell service and say what's going on. So, you know, I made my way back to Stevens. I was there the next day. Returned to a completely shell-shocked patrol. Um, and um, these people were my good friends too. You know, I knew all the players well and their partners. And, you know, so a lot of communication, a lot of um, um, uh, catch-up. And then then the next piece of mine was to to help the forecast center create a write-up on it and investigate it. And, you know, inter, you know, I had a lot to do with the investigative report that was there. Uh, another patroller uh, helped with that greatly. Yeah, so it was, it, I, I feel like I was in a challenging place because I wasn't right there to truly understand all the emotions that everybody was going through. I mean, I could understand them, but, you know, not, you know, I wasn't in the grim part of it, but, you know, I had to go down and document and document and pictures and all sorts of stuff. So I felt it deeply when I was there. And uh, I, um, I would say that it was the classic um, study that Ian McCammon had done also in 2004. It's called The Heuristic Traps. And that it's hard to believe it's almost 20 years ago that he started looking at, it, like, we're doing all, all this avalanche education, but these people are still getting caught. What are we missing? And it was more something that we weren't teaching was more the the human social components of touring in the backcountry. And it was, you know, called Heuristic Traps. Uh, um, Airy has created their own modification of this but you could narrow it down to like familiarity, acceptance, expert halo, uh, social issues, you know, just, uh, you know, a few of those in uh, this group fit every one of them in that they fit, you know, they were familiar with the region. Oh, we go to do this all the time, even though it's high avalanche hazard. And, um, you know, it was a high profile group. There was, you know, media, um, you know, see, you know, there was a lot of rock star people and it was the first powder we'd had in weeks. And so there was that scarcity and there was all this stuff that was surrounding it and um, group think. And, um, you know, the memorials were intense in that some of them said we knew the avalanche hazard was there. We just didn't speak up, you know, because it's such a cool guy group, you know. And hmm. yeah, so it was, it, it fit all these things that w even though most of these people were avalanche trained, group mentality, first powder and forever, um, familiarity, expert halo, all those things played in almost to a T, you know? Yeah, it's interesting to you know, read the reports and, and work through the, the snowfall case study. Um, and I have to say that, you know, it, it's good kind of mental practice to put yourself in that situation, pretend you're part of that group and, 
and it's really hard to be the one to speak up and point out maybe the the things that people don't want to see, right? Like that's a it's a really tough situation to be in. Um, and I, I think it's easy to fall into all of those traps. Would you absolutely, agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Myself included, you know, and, and I, I, I appreciate what you said. It's like, that could have been me you know, easily. Like if I had a day off and I saw the group hang, you know, so they did the classic, they skied the area until the powder was wiped out regrouped at the cot you know down by the coffee shop and you know is outside you know near the fires and stuff and so you could have easily just walked up and said yeah we're gonna go do tunnel yay let's go do tunnel you know it's you know out of bounds excess you know excess by the upper lifts you easily do that you know um so yeah i can't fault them but it was so classic how it fit in that the beautiful thing is what I have seen is the evolution in avalanche, I mean, in avalanche education, you know, how this is a really big component of, say, the ARI program and other programs now is really diving into this piece. Uh, how do you communicate? How do you, you know, where do you fit in? How Are you the one that speaks up? Are you the one that just assumes everybody knows more than you? Or, you know, just, just really trying to identify how you operate and, and creating your own group that you're super comfortable with out there to, that you could create a good communication of I'm not feeling it or I'm, I'm a little nervous or have you seen, the, you know, it's warming up today. What do you think that's doing to the snow? You know, um, really, really crazy. I mean, that's where I, you know, when you were talking about some of the caveats of the, the, I mean, not the caveats, but the, uh, misconceptions of the maritime snowpack is that again it's back to the radical changes that happen during the day in one day and then you know i just think it's important to keep tabs on what you're seeing when you're out there yeah staying present and having good situational awareness of of what's what's happening around you right i think it's sometimes easy for people to to, to kind of fall into looking into the snowpack and splitting hairs over, or these rounding facets, or are they fascinating rounds? And, and <laughs> yeah, a lot of good. times just, just your, your group dynamics and your conversations that you're having within your touring party, um, as well as just kind of paying attention to what's going on around you is the most important thing. And in, in my opinion, um, and so I agree, I'm, I'm glad that avalanche education is kind of shifting focus a little bit more to that these days for sure yeah it's even interesting to see the evolution of uh, it used to be dig 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 always dig and now you know jameson and all of them are starting to say well there's many times you don't have to dig you already know you know so if you want to dig to confirm yeah. what you know awesome but you already know you've got all these parameters saying avalanche hazard is happening you know so you know I, I found that fascinating because back in the day it was dig. That's you know you just got to get your head in the snow to know. But really, the, the unfortunate part is that because of the word you've been using a lot is microclimbs. You know that pit represents right there and there only. Really, you know you can extrapolate and we do and we have to. And again, it's back to that even idea of east wind loads west wind. We have to have some sort of uh, measure, but you know. You have to also keep in mind that was right there. 
how is this slope, even though it seems similar, how could this slope be different? You know, same aspect, same, you know, you know, elevation, but it could be different. You know, so you just try to dig your pit and just dig a lot of cat holes as you're skiing along to see if you can find that same layer that you're concerned about. And, you know, it's, 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 it's nature. It's, it's not rocket science, but it's at the same time, it's a little more complex than people think. Yeah. Patty, talk about the, some trends that you would notice in terms of the snowpack, let's say doing avalanche control, at Stevens Pass, uh, early season versus kind of later in the season. I mean, would you say that it becomes a, a bit of an artificial snowpack um, from skier compaction and, and so much uh, avalanche mitigation? Wow, you know, that's interesting. So realistically, um, early season, you know, you still may have enough anchors. You know what I mean? Still, you know, like the... the four foot tree, you know, so you still have a foot sticking out or something like that. So a little suddenly different there, but really, um, it's a ski area is really, it's, I, I call it new snow mitigation. It's not really ever um, worrying about deep layers within your ski area. So I kind of trans, you know, uh, because I'm such a backcountry skier, I find I can easily talk about snow like it's all the same, but inbounds, of course you have skier compaction you have, um, you know, you're you're doing lots of little avalanches, so you prevent the big catastrophic one. So, you know, it it does become a whole different snowpack. And I say, if when you know it's new snow mitigation, that's just a good way to put it. Very seldom would we ever be concerned of deep layers. Not to say it can't happen, and that's exactly what happened at Crystal when they had some big problems. You know, they put big bombs on on it because we knew we had this deep layer. I mean, we had it too. We were digging insanely deep pits. I mean, you know, deep, deep pits just to monitor this layer that was laid down and didn't heal. And uh, luckily we just dodged the bullet, Stevens, but Crystal ended up having insane huge releases within the in, within their bounds because of this. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but most of the time you get to knock that down. Even like in the Continental, what they'll do is early season boot packing just to knock down, and you know the lower layer instabilities. You know, so um, I'm not sure where I was heading with this. Other than you know, you it's almost unfair to compare a ski area to the backcountry. You know, right. Um, maybe you could recount some storm cycles that, that have caught you off guard either, um, with new snow instabilities or, or something that tipped the balance on a, on one of those more infrequent, deeper, persistent weak layers that you were talking about. Um, I'm trying to think what caught me off guard. Um, I remember one in particular, you know, again, you know, back then, you know, forecasting, you know, depending on the Northwest Avalanche Center and, you know, I wasn't as privy to reading my own models as much, as, you know, stuff like that. Um, so every once in a while, you know, just a missed forecast or the, or the weather came in at a different timing than we all expected. So that can catch you a little bit by surprise. But I think uh, a couple of times was doing control, getting mixed results 
and almost done with control and then all of a sudden having a rapid temperature spike and all of a sudden everything's ripping around you, you know, and you're going, and we knew that this warm up would be coming. So we were trying to anticipate it you know, or, the, or, you know, just no results, no results. And then all of a sudden we're getting massive results down lower and you go, gosh, does that mean we have to go back up high and redo it? Or, you know, and just, you know, so, so some of those, uh, quick weather changes midday or, or mid control morning has thrown us, thrown me a little bit, you know, of, wow, what's happening all of a sudden we're getting results lower and we got none up higher. What's going on? You know, you know, so, so a little of those surprises. Um, and then, you know, uh, it's not quite like Tahoe, but we can get some of those storms that are just huge dumps where the road, everything closes, and then so you have to go in and clean up afterwards. And so those can be pretty deep problems. Um, again, our backside will get a lot of times gets open later in the season. So you go out later, meaning in just a couple few weeks, but sometimes you'll, you'll go out to control it and you do have more of a backcountry scenario back there early season let's talk a little bit about rain events and um some of the lessons that you've learned from rain on snow events and then maybe subsequent persistent weak layers that that are created around a rain crust buried deeper in the in the snowpack well i really noticed you know uh, some of our the, some of our storms that come in that you know you know a positive storm starts out warm goes cold you know so that just you know, it means you're going to have the warmth bonded to the pre previous layer, and then you're just getting cold snow on top of it. So you still might have avalanches, but they're, you know, it's, it's more in your favor. The challenging storm is, I call it upside down storm. It starts cold and then goes warm and, you know, heading towards the trend of potential rain. And what I've noticed is the timing of that is like, if you have new snow and the rain comes, it's almost immediate. You know, it's not like waiting for the rain to start the avalanche cycle. It can almost be immediate. I'm, I'm always impressed with that. Um, um, rain events can be frustrating. They can create real massive avalanche cycles, just, you know, just ripping down to whatever base layer that they're going to slide on whether it's another rain crust or whatever they can they can definitely create a big avalanche cycle but there's part of me that's appreciative of them because it'll reset the snowpack on all aspects and if you will it's the great mm. equalizer like if you had some facets developing on a north face slope that you know you've been watching boy all you need is a rain cycle to reset it if that makes sense, <laughs> because it creates an avalanche cycle and then you're back to a pretty stable snowpack. Sure. I like that positive spin on, on rain. Oh yeah. There's been times people are like, Oh no, rain's coming. I'm like, Oh yay, rain's coming because then I can stop thinking about this problem. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> oh yeah. How about, how about faceting around, around rain crusts? Any trends that you've noticed throughout your time at Stevens? Well, near crust faceting is a real problem. But again, it, I've 
you know, I, I basically been blessed when I was a forecaster. I had lots of time just to stick my head in snow and, and do a lot of experiments. You know, I did percolation experiments and I did, uh, 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 I just, I had this whole slope that I cornered off and I dig pits in it every, at least once a week and follow different layers and just watch them. And, uh, near faceting near rain crust was really an intrigue of mine for quite a while. And I'd get all excited as I'm watching these facets almost like consume the crust. And if you will, the, the crust is slowly but surely going away, but you have, now you have this layer of facets there. So you're going, is this going to be a problem layer? And most of the time they just heal themselves, heal themselves in the maritime. But what I discovered was um, with facets, those micro facets like that, the thinner the layer, the more dangerous they were. The thicker the layer, the more they just kind mm. of compressed and rebonded. Is that an interesting one? Like I'd have, say, I'm going to say, let's say um, I'm going to grab a, a good amount, five centimeters of facets that had developed and they're just sitting there and you go oh my god oh my god and what i you know this is a problem there and then it'd never be a problem and what i just see is that it was so thick it almost like could compress and take it i don't i don't know how to explain it other than that i'm still intrigued by that one hmm. go ahead you, you think in in just uh in terms of having a deeper snowpack and a bit of a warmer regime that was that was healing it a bit Yes, definitely. You know, the classic maritime deeper, you know, so, so all those hold true for it. And then again, it's just, it's seldom that we will maintain a deep layer and stability, but, you know, again, it's, you know, merit, you can be in the maritime and have a continental snowpack for a winter. Just, it doesn't snow. It's cold and clear the whole time. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Or it, you can be in the continental snowpack and it's been dumping and relatively a little bit warmer. So, again, these these are just a good good categories. But just know that you can get continental experience in in the Cascades. You know, all you need is a weak year of snow. Right. That makes sense. Shallow and cold. That's basically defines continental, and you can have it here. I think that's another challenging people for, for them to wrap their heads around. Sure. And I, and I think as, as our climate warms and there's, I think there's more rain events in regions that aren't used to seeing rain events. And I think there's rain at higher elevations now than there has been in the past. And so I think seeing these rain crusts laid into snowpacks that might not be in a maritime climate um, is, is happening more and more frequently. Um, with some of these associated weak layers around the the near crust faceting, right? Yeah, I think you're you're spot on with that idea, of, especially if you're starting to develop, you know, getting these these rain events on on a weaker snowpack. That that could be really interesting. To that, it could just be another one of those layers that develop and then then say, you know, goes back to his normal weather patterns and all of a sudden is, yep, another deep layer instability. Again, because of the depth, the deepness of the snow and the warmth here, those usually, I find they usually heal themselves. I'm, I'm in awe to watch uh, rain crusts disappear. 
with time. I call it heal themselves, if you will. Mm. But, you know, just like a major rain crust. And, you know, again, that the few years that I decided to dig these pits all on the same slope, just so I could watch different layers over time, you know, I, and needless to say, my pits got deeper and deeper with time <laughs> trying to follow some layers. Oh man, the, the ski area boundary is such a, a great laboratory, right? It's, it's, uh, it's awesome to be able to have that consistency and access those sites where you can track those layers. And I mean, not that it's that hard to do in the backcountry, but, um, I just think it's, it's great to be able to be that intimately involved with a snowpack as you are when you're ski patrolling and forecasting at a resort. Yeah. And again, this, this, uh, this was basically the, this region that I had used would be comparable to backcountry, not to the ski area, you know? And I mm-hmm. think, you know, that, that again, this, this subject's probably been visited a lot, which brings up, you know, we have, we our our boundaries aren't closed here, so we have incredible access to um, some steep terrain just outside the bounds. And you know, it used to be saying that it's called side country, or you know, eh, you know, but side country is back country. I I'm I'm venturing to say this that I think side country sometimes can be more dangerous than back country skiing. Because mm. when when you're touring, you are quiet, you're skinning, you're picking up on the snow, on what's it doing, how is it, how is it today? When you jump off of a lift straight into the uh, backcountry, you you don't have that unconscious knowledge to help you consider what this, you know, what the hazards are. If that makes sense. You know, just that time uphill really, really gives you a lot of information, you know? Yeah, for sure. With good access into the backcountry from the ski area, um, it seems like Stevens Pass started putting on avalanche courses. And so I, I think that's a great thing for ski areas to do. Um, and, and people can get to know the adjacent backcountry a little bit better and, and learn from professionals. Uh, it sounds like you you helped to spearhead that initiative. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, so um, I started teaching in-house courses to patrollers and then started getting a lot of people inquiring if we could do them for employees. And then it evolved where um, because I was teaching, I was starting to get more involved with helping guide companies teach, you know, like uh, Larry Goldie and other people. And then was introduced to the ARI curriculum. And um, in that time, I was teaching the, you know, back then, that's where I could say is the evolution of avalanche education has been amazing in my 30-some years in the avalanche world. Um, uh, in that, you know, we the United States, we didn't have any standard. And so the American Avalanche Association was asked to create standards and, you know, create courses. You know, side note, I was on the board of the American Avalanche Association for eight years. And so it, this was the time of really looking hard at um, trying to create a common core cur- curriculum and um, 
And so that the guidelines were put out, Don Sheriff and a lot of people put a lot of hard work into it. And um, they, it was good to start creating a standard. And then, you know, once that standard was set, they started realizing that this is still more for the professional. You know, we need to do a recreation pro split. So that split was really a positive thing. And so once I started getting a little involved with Airy and more and more people were asking me, you know, to do classes, this I there was this yurt that was used at the pass and then for uh, snow sledding, sledding. I think there was a little phase in the 90s where ski areas were also doing the little sledding depart, you know, hill and that that went out of fashion quick because of injuries, you know, insurance. So we had this yurt that was just right on the mountain and somebody said, man, maybe you could teach courses out of the yurt. And, and um, then next thing I know, I'm an area instructor and starting this program called the uh, Stevens Pass Mountain Education. And um, it grew and became super popular. I think part of the cool thing about it is like, uh, I mean, my, it was based on the snow from day one. You know, you just go to this yurt and you're, and then we could use lift access and, you know, it was a really, really good venue to teach an avalanche course. Then it grew to the point where I was teaching over 11 avalanche level ones a year and, um, and uh, teaching intro to avalanche classes and uh, plus still being a forecaster plus I was also working some with uh, the Department of Transportation at that time. And what I discovered, I was overworking and not skiing like I love. You know, I love sharing about snow. but I So um, had pulled the program back just a little bit, scaled it back. But I stopped being a forecaster in 2013 and ran with just running the program. And then COVID hit and uh, shut down everything. And so it gave us a time to revisit it and kind of scale it back uh, um, to just less, less, less work. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a great but program. But the, the, the courses will still be offered this, this season? Oh, yeah. We're still offering them. And maybe it'll grow again. You know, again, I am 62, so I'm starting to phase out of uh, – you know, working so much and just you know, keep playing while my body can. And, uh, um, I hope to pass it on. And, uh, the new, uh, general manager that we got just got this year, she's super supportive and thinks it's a great thing. So that's really encouraging. And so it's going to live. It's a, it's a, it's a good thing. It's, it used to be based out of patrol, but we moved it to, under the ski school umbrella just because they're the one that can take in revenue and registration and stuff like that. So that's been somewhat of a positive shift. Uh, I think it's a really great program. And part of the inspiration was to make it so patrollers could also get experience and become instructors, you know, as you know, the natural evolution of you, you know, patroller guide instructor, stuff like that. So, this just kind of was a neat avenue to give people exposure to that as well. Uh, sounds like a great program, Patty. Thank you. I was curious what advice you could offer to younger ski patrollers and ski area 
avalanche forecasters. Another way to ask, ask this question, which I sometimes do, is what advice would you have for your 25-year-old self? <laughs> I feel like I followed my advice. I mean, I, I almost am in awe. Like, again, when I was 23, I met at Mount Ashland this woman. She was a snow ranger. And I could tell you I was in serious awe. So I think I was already planting the seed in my mind. Like, I want to do that. I want to get into snow. This is best job ever. And um, I'd say my advice is if you're really passionate, take advantage of what's around you. Like, go to those ISSWs. Go to, you know, to the INSAWS. Um, you know, patrol. Uh, and again, if you're, you know, if you're really your your idea is avalanches, you know, show your focus to that forecaster, you know, show I'm interested, I want to know more, you know, and, and so it's a lot about mentorship, just finding your mentors, and but also putting yourself in that position, setting yourself up, you know, I, um, again, I went and I was blessed with Stevens, they, they funded a lot of my education, like I did what, back then it was called PAWS, uh, pro avalanche workers um, course. It was 10 days long and then it became ab pro. And, and then eventually, I, I mean, I even was one of the instructors with Dallas with ab pro for the American Avalanche Association. So I just say, get your hands in there. Just put, put yourself out there. I'm interested. You know, I've watched a, a, one of our Northwest Avalanche forecasters, Katie Warren. I watched her from her beginning to her growth and you know and she was always just putting herself right there let me help can i help can i do this can i you know and you know she she's she's doing great she even volunteered for a year i mean a season up in girdwood you know so you know if you really have the passion just follow your passion you know it'll it'll happen excellent great advice patty thank you and thanks for coming on the show today. I, I really appreciate chatting with you and hearing about your experiences at, at Stevens Pass and beyond. And uh, thanks for sharing some of your insights. Sure. I hope it sounds all right. <laughs> I think it's going to sound great. Anything else that you'd like to, to share with the community to, to cover on the episode here? Well, yes. I um, again, when you reached out to do this podcast, I didn't really know about you or anything. And then when I uh, started looking at, at some of the folks you've interviewed, it was really impressive. So I encourage people to check out the Avalanche Hour podcast. <laughs> well, thanks to you for listening to this great episode with Patty. I hope you enjoyed it. Music on today's episode was Back When and Come Back by Ketza and used with permission from the artist. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T. You the man, T. Check out more of his work at his website, www.miketea.com. If you're enjoying the Avalanche Hour podcast and are seeking out some more great conversations, to help you and your partners manage risk and have more fun in the backcountry, then check out the Delivering Adventure podcast, hosted by Chris Capio and Jordy Shepard. I think you'll really like it. 
And while you're at it, if you haven't heard my conversation with Jordy Shepard, head on back to episode 74 and check it out. Give us a follow on the social media. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And that's the best way to keep up to date on latest releases from the podcast. Of course, our podcast episodes come out on the 1st, the 15th, and then usually the third week of every month. So we have three a month throughout the winter season. Um, And if you're just finding the show, head on back and check out some of the older episodes. There are definitely some great episodes back from the last six seasons there. If you've been enjoying the show, make sure to tell a friend about it. And then take it a step further and subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. Send any feedback you have for us to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com or you could find a link, a contact us link from the website www.theavalanchehour.com. Also on that website, if you're feeling like helping us out to grow our show, to help us produce better quality products, then you can find a donate button at the website as well and uh, kick us a few bucks, of course, after you've donated to the American Avalanche Association and maybe your local Avalanche Center. We're kind of that third tier down. But in order to keep this thing going, we sure could use your help. So if you have it within you, kick us a few bucks. Appreciate you. Make sure to tune in to our next episode on December 15th where we hear from guest host Matthias over in Europe and uh, it's always great to hear what's going on over in his neck of the woods for the early winter. I really enjoy his episodes every time they come out as I do with all the guest hosts but I'm excited to have Matthias back for season 7 so make sure to tune into that again on December 15th. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.